0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, November 10th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. In the new Cato Institute book, Empowering the New American Workers, scholars address myriad ways that the feds, states, and localities can adjust labor and related policies, all in the interest of giving workers maximum flexibility and range of movement to lead more productive and fulfilling professional lives. Scott Linsicum is the book's editor and author of multiple chapters. Many of the book's chapters are available today at Cato.org. The pandemic presented sort of unprecedented challenges, at least with a whole lot of uh, what we would otherwise take for granted, which is the rate at which unemployment increases or decreases, Uh, the degree to which uh, state governments are encouraged to perhaps loosen a whole bunch of restrictions all at once in order to accommodate a lot of new workplace arrangements So uh, I'm sure I'm leaving a whole bunch out. So so how has life changed for average workers in the last two and a half years?
1: Uh, well, uh, yeah, there's been some fundamental changes. You know, starting with the fact that we were all stuck in our homes for for at least a month. Uh, you had a really dramatic rise in remote work, um, based less on the emergence of new technologies and more on uh, the necessity. And then, of course, once people got used to remote work, both employees and bosses, um, they realized there was a lot of uh, good stuff about remote work. Um, and they realized that on the employee side, they really liked remote work. Um, they liked being, avoiding that commute. Uh, they liked being able to, you know, pick their kids up from school or soccer practice or whatever, um, and then, you know, hop back in uh, to the virtual office. Uh, employers realized they could fish from a much larger ocean um, of, of potential workers. They realized that, hey, um, really, you know, Concerns about productivity and workplace culture were uh, less serious than they imagined they would be, that surely, you know, not everything's perfect. So um, that was a big change. Uh, Another big change is you saw a significant increase in independent work. Over uh, during the pandemic, as people for again for mainly for necessity, um, but also just because they wanted to, and and the, and especially later on in the pandemic, as as the job market got so hot and there was so much demand for work, uh, you saw a lot of folks um, go out on their own as uh, independent workers, so independent contractors uh, saw a substantial rise in in people who were freelancers in um, various. Uh, professions. Um, not just, you know, gig working Uber drivers, but computer programmers and in and marketing and, and finance and other things. Um, but at the same time, you also saw a lot of new business formation. In fact, um, we we had been seeing prior to the pandemic, traditional declines in new business formation. So people starting businesses. Uh, and then all of a sudden, the pandemic, we saw a really substantial increase. And this wasn't just people forced to, uh, you know, be a a personal trainer because they lost their jobs at the gym. Uh, It was a lot of companies that actually were going to have employees, so not just sole proprietorships. We saw both. And again, driven by both necessity and a a churning economy that had
0: new demands. One of the big upsides for uh, workers has been uh, negotiating power we've seen an extremely tight labor market uh, across a broad range of uh, employment and and workers have in many in many cases capitalized on that uh but the the downside is that a whole lot of the the framework of of all the kinds of regulation yep. that we've had around all of that hasn't really changed that much so right and this is-
1: yeah, this is a a fundamental problem, and one of the reasons why uh, I set out to to write this book, uh, empowering the new American worker, is that if you if you are hang out in Washington at all, and I, you know, I'm sorry if you do, uh, you listen to a lot of politicians and wonks and pundits on the right and the left um, pushing pro-worker policy. Everybody's into pro-worker policy. The pro-worker policy that's being pushed is always government-centric. It is always more top-down planning and protectionism and wage subsidies and, uh, mandated paid leave and benefits. So it's all very government-centric. And it really ignores, uh, those fundamental changes in the, uh, in the economy that we talked about during the pandemic. But also, really importantly, it ignores, uh, all of the existing policies out there on things like occupational licensing and housing regulation and childcare, care, health care, welfare, uh, gig work, tariffs and trade policy, even criminal justice that uh, have been shown in study after study to depress Americans' wages, to depress labor force participation, to uh, depress new business formation or economic mobility, whether from job to job or place to place. Um, And even worse, a lot of those policies I just mentioned that are mucking things up are often couched in pro-worker rhetoric, like, you know, steel tariffs or whatever. So uh, the policies tend to ignore all of that. Uh, And they also similarly, ignore a lot of market-based reforms that would improve all those things I just talked about, real wages, mobility, and, and the rest. And so the book is really a response to that uh, anti-market, uh, pro-government view of pro-worker policy, the idea that markets are um, inherently anti worker that workers are really struggling out there in the supposedly free market and they thus need government to step in at the state level or at the federal level to fix these perceived market failures via again, more, more government spending, more bureaucracy and the rest. So what we tried to do is, is correct the record. Right. To point out all of the problematic policies that are out there, not just at the federal level, but against at the state and local level, too. And then propose some uh, pragmatic market based solutions that have been repeatedly proven, uh, both in practice and in the academic literature, to produce really tangible, measurable benefits for the vast majority of the American workforce.
0: This is sort of a soup to nuts uh, agenda for uh, reforming policy. Uh, in favor of worker flexibility of w- life satisfaction for for workers yeah. and mobility um, among other things so um give me a sense of what these chapters uh, look like and why why they were written sure so uh, it really starts
1: from the like you said the understanding that americans today if you look at the polling and if you look at actual behaviors uh americans really value flexibility they value autonomy uh they value uh, or and they need i should say mobility that uh in the last few decades americans haven't been changing jobs as much they haven't been moving as much and that uh creates some harms for those workers that are inability to get a raise by changing jobs or inability to escape a place that might not be doing so hot for whatever reason. Uh, and so what we tried to do again is, is look at, at really, like you said, a soup to nuts review of, of what's really going on out there. So I think a really classic example is in the housing space, right? So, uh, housing regulations uh, through the form of you know, zoning rules and permitting fees and the rest um, prevent workers from moving from a low-growth area to a high-growth area, right? Uh, because housing prices become a, a barrier, a really legitimate barrier against that type of mobility. Um, at the same time, it's not just about housing regulation, though. You know There are we have tariffs on almost everything you need to build a house, which uh, raises the kind of baseline cost of a house anywhere in the country. Uh, we have uh, regulations that prevent manufactured housing and new and innovative forms of housing. So all of that, again, uh, prevents Workers from, from moving from place to place or from simply you know, owning a home and building wealth via that you know, common vehicle. And, and so uh, you know, a pro-worker policy looks at that housing situation and says, okay, what, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to uh, reform the zoning rules. We're going to reform tax policy at the federal level. And the chapter really sets out to show where kind of the bodies are buried and then provide an agenda uh, for federal and state and local policymakers to make some really good improvements that will benefit, again, a lot of the American workforce. Um, But it's not just kind of, that's kind of, I think, standard wonkery, right? Uh, One of the other chapters, though, I think looks at uh, an area that doesn't get a lot of coverage when we talk about labor markets. Uh, and that is criminal justice. So, you know, studies show that millions and millions of Americans have some form of criminal record, um, or, you know, whether it's an arrest or a conviction, uh, there are millions of people who have, you know, felony convictions. And this actually tends to depress labor force participation, particularly among women. Uh, women are stigmatized by a criminal record, so they just stay out of the labor force. But it also uh, discourages moving from job to job. You can think about it. If you have a record uh, and that gets comes up in every job interview, you're probably going to be less uh, likely to want to move jobs. Uh, and we find that uh, it it has pretty pernicious effects for certain disadvantaged groups uh, in in society as well. You know, we worry about um, the young working aged males dropping out of the labor force. Well, we then we kind of ignore that a lot of that is you know due to a criminal record or people who are actually still in jail, uh, often for you know, nonviolent offenses. Uh, Or even worse, they have convictions that aren't even crimes anymore, you know, when it comes to like marijuana possession or whatever. So again, the chapter examines that problem uh, and how it's affecting American workers in the labor market and then proposes reforms uh, in things like expungement, automatic expungement of nonviolent uh, crimes uh, and convictions, or immediate expunction, expungement of an arrest record where you don't even actually get convicted. Uh, and then some of the usual criminal justice reforms related to, say, plea bargaining and other things, again, to to really improve
0: the employment prospects of tens of millions uh, of Americans. And at a time when employers are scrambling to get and keep and reward and train and develop high output workers.
1: Exactly. Uh, you know, in a time of persistent labor shortages, uh, these are the type. that's the type of reform that just makes a ton of sense. And current criminal justice policy, not labor policy, just makes it all a little harder. Um, Discouraging uh, the supply side, the labor supply, so the workers entering and staying in the labor market, and then also often discouraging employers from hiring. Uh, And again, we're not talking about people with murder convictions or whatever. It's it's about minor uh, nonviolent crimes that could be even decades old that are having this depressive effect.
0: You talked about tariffs, uh, raising the price of housing. Uh, But when it comes to criminal justice, when it comes to zoning or other kinds of housing regulation, that's overwhelmingly state and local. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that's, I think, another key point is, one, the debate on pro-worker policy is often really centralized, no pun intended, at the federal level. And it ignores how much of our lives are affected by state policy. You know, I think another really good example of this is childcare. You know, it's state and local regulations related to for example, staff to child ratios or occupational licensing requirements. You know, now in DC, I think you have to have like a PhD or something, you know, to to take care of a 3-year-old. Um no, actually, I think it's like only a college degree. But anyway, you get the idea. And and those types of things again Uh, have been shown repeatedly to have a really substantial inflationary effect on the price of childcare. So if you're a worker who has a young kid, you know, kids are great, we're very pro-kid, you maybe aren't taking that job because you have to stay home with the child because you you can't afford $30,000 a year or whatever for child care in Washington, D.C. Uh, even though you have an education, you want to be back in the workforce, that's just an artificial impediment. And, you know, similarly, uh, when you talk about child care or other types of uh, businesses. Uh, We have uh, onerous local regulations that block home-based businesses. So we have a chapter on home-based businesses. You know, there are a lot of people out there that would love to work, say, part-time from home, uh, maybe selling food, you know, uh, whether it's beer or baked goods, uh, maybe both. Uh, You there are a lot of local zoning restrictions and other rules that prevent people from working out of their homes. And that, you know, I mentioned childcare, that of course, home-based childcare used to be a very common thing and is now outright prohibited in certain places, which just makes no sense, right? Especially now that a lot of people are remote working, uh, you can't even you can't bring your kid next door legally to um, have uh, child care. So again, we look at those state and local issues as well, and and look at the impediments to just letting workers live the lives they want to work, um, not uh, you know as kind of cogs in some sort of giant federal machine.
0: And, and the upside here to uh, the the policy proposals that you lay out in Empowering the New American Worker is that they're not new spending programs overwhelmingly. Yeah. Whereas uh, somebody like Joe Biden or uh, various governors or city officials might say, hey, we need to encourage X, Y, and Z in our communities. This is a way to do that without having to Create some massive new bureaucracy. It's largely the government getting out of the way.
1: Very much so, and and it's getting out of the way in very practical ways too. You know, we're not really out there just saying, "Oh, you got to abolish the Department of Education," but we're looking at uh, really uh, innovative and pragmatic ways to improve everybody's daily lives by mainly by getting government out of the way, or in some cases, just consolidating some of the programs that are already out there. You know, you look at welfare or mandated benefits, um, our, our entitlement system, there are just so many different programs out there that are not only duplicative but costly and inefficient and have all sorts of unintended consequences that almost inevitably come with government interventions in the market. And so sometimes it's just simply about, well, simplifying those things
0: to improve, again, workers' daily lives. Over subsequent Cato Daily podcasts, we'll be drilling down into some of these uh, issues. Uh, But what is, you know, what's the, you mentioned criminal justice, but I wonder if, is that the most sort of... Uh, out of what might seem to be out of left field when you're talking about a pro-worker policies?
1: I think so. You know, in terms of a lot of the policies we talk about, you know, occupational licensing, for example, or home-based businesses, or um, healthcare we get into as well. I mean, all of these things, you know, are commonly brought up in the pro-worker context. So I think criminal justice is probably the one that is least discussed in terms of labor, the labor policy debate. But we do get into some others that uh, affect our daily lives but aren't really brought up. You know, for example, there's a chapter on essential goods. And we talk about how government policy, whether it's sugar quotas or tariffs on clothing and footwear, uh, increase the costs of everyday necessities um, and thus again make us poorer in real terms. Now that's not necessarily a pro-worker policy, although sometimes tariffs are couched as pro-worker. But it is about you know increasing real wages uh, for American workers without things like wage subsidies or the rest. You know, instead of just giving them government taxpayer money, uh, you just actually remove tariffs and other things that make stuff more expensive and increase their, you know, their real incomes, their kind of take home pay, what they really feel. Uh, we have another chapter of similarly on transportation policy, right? So transportation policy isn't really a pro-worker issue, but let's face it, a lot of people have to commute, they have to travel for business, and they deal with things like how, you know, with gas prices and the rest. So we look at How government policy makes energy and gas more expensive. The good old Jones Act. I have to mention that by, by rule. I have to mention the Jones Act in every podcast. Uh, That increases gas prices. Uh, You have bad uh, infrastructure policy that makes uh, it harder to commute and transit policy and the rest. So we get into some of that as, as well. And that's again, not really a, a labor policy, but it affects millions and millions of American workers' daily lives in ways that just make everything worse and make things a little harder for the American worker.
0: Scott Linsicum is editor of the new Cato book, Empowering the New American Worker. Many of the book's chapters are available today at Cato.org. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.